the good blows. It's the good blows. It's the good blows. Society podcast. Still number one, the GBS jingle all around the country and international now in Singapore. Um, looking forward to um, Coach Cole. Maybe getting Coach Cole on a podcast episode coming up, but this is episode four, Good Bloke Society. Um, hello all, I'm Sean Wallace, CEO and founder of the Good Bloke Society. Welcome to episode four, Good Blokes with a Purpose podcast. And uh, on uh, this episode, special guest, Guy Leach. Shawnee, it's good to be here. It's Guy Leach. We're going to hear a bit about the Guy Leach story, which goes way back. And um, mm. and uh, we've been introduced, Leachy, by um, Wally, Mark Eustace. Wally, good Indeed. old Wally. We yeah. love Wally. He's uh, he's introduced us and brought the relationship forward. Um, so we're going to talk to Leachy in a second. We're going to talk about his story. We're going to talk about purpose and a lot of your story um, of recent years is all about purpose, Leachy. Yeah? yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we're going to highlight, uh, and talk about why we've been connected and why we share a purpose now. Mm. Um, so, um, just to start with, uh, to all our uh, members, thanks for listening in feedback so far over our first few episodes have been great. And, uh, for anyone that's new to the good bloke society listening for the first time, welcome uh, a little bit about the good bloke society little bit about our DNA and, and ethos. The Good Blokes Society is a community of good blokes, uh, of course. Our passion and purpose is to create positive, positive relationships. I love that word, positive. Um, dislike the uh, the opposite to uh, positive, Leachy. We don't like negative, do we? Negativity. Try to stay away from that as yeah, much as we can. Yeah. So we? we're all about creating positive relationships for our members and our three pillars of care, uh, business, social, and wellness. And we're a community that is growing. We're growing and uh, we provide platforms and events. We run the best events, let's be honest, for men to connect and support one another. And uh, we provide a safe place for like-minded men to have real conversations. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to have a conversation, Leachy. First few episodes, I've yeah. had a, a big assembly of people in the podcast SEN studio here, but um, today this, not so much. No, not today, <laughs> not today. Just you and you and me, mate. So um, it's a quiet talk between two blokes. Quiet talk, quiet talk, and uh, <laughs> nice talk. We've just come from uh, Elysium. Elysium Finance, yeah. mm. thanks to David Amos. So we'll give Elysium a little plug because David uh, is a great member and supporter of the Good Bloke Society, and David. Um, buys tables and supports a lot of the events and, and the business and wellness event we hosted in May, we had 500 at Centrepiece in Melbourne and David bought an experience with yourself. We did. Guy, um, which was uh, a bit of a boardroom experience. So tonight we went out to Scoresby, out to his offices and he had uh, some of his staff and some of his clients and, and uh, you shared was, part of the story crew. that we're going to get into. Yeah, 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 it was a good crew there. Yeah. It was uh, well received. Yeah, and, he did a um, good job. They were good people. And we got a couple of gifts. We did. Yeah. Went away with a few gifts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Guy Leach, let's, let's, let's talk stories. Let's talk where it began, like, um, growing up, um, you know, surf lifesaving, um, Ironman, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about all the titles in a minute, but you know, do you grow up by the beach? 
But I grew up at Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach. Believe it or not. So Victoria, here we are. And uh, that's where I started. So I was born born in Melbourne. Melbourneian. Um, yes, me and my younger brother. And um, unfortunately, my, my parents started not to like each other too much uh, when I was younger. And uh, they split up and... I moved up to Sydney with my how, brother. How old are you there? How old I would you have been five, I reckon. Okay. I would have been You're five. Young. Don't really remember it, but um, moved up to um, Mossman up on the North shore of Sydney. Dad was still in Melbourne. So there was a split and I used to come back down with my brother school holidays to visit dad. So um, what's your brother's name? Simon. Yeah. Simon lives you... up in Noosa. Okay. I've just yeah. been in Noosa. I know, I know. Yeah. On Hastings street there. You have. You're close. Uh, yeah, yeah, like friendly, but yep. not, not like super close, not best but mates, yeah. no, not best mates, but, um, but we just, yeah, we've always been you know, good with each other. And so, yeah, so, uh, he's up there and I'm, I'm in Sydney and, um, yeah, that was a start. And I think that, um, I got fortunate in that, um, yeah, I was close to the coastline and when it was time that I wanted to start doing Ironman, it was, uh, just a natural progression having the sort of the, the ocean as your front yard. Yeah. 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 So, so growing up, um, moving to Mossman, w- when do you sort of get into sport? Um, you know, is, is, um, you know, Ironman being a <laughs> running on the beach. I, I think if you're living there and you get into nippers, you, you sort of get into that environment. Yeah. Was, was, was that you or I, was there? I, I was a unicorn. So I was the odd man out. Yeah. So I, I literally, um, started swimming when I was eight years of age. Cause I was the kid that, um, got a cold and it, it got on the chest and was off to the doctors and antibiotics. And I think at some stage, the doctor said to my mom, listen, get him in the pool and just strengthen up his lungs and you know, that'll help. So they did that. And I took to the water really quickly and loved it. And, um, by the time I was nine, I went to the state titles and competed in a couple of events and, uh, had a win in the hundred breaststroke. Which was um, surprising, and um, that was the start. So I literally got that that kickstart um, in in one of the first events, and I just loved um, I loved the work ethic that went with training, and then you could put it on the line. Like I was just um, I, I I didn't realize that I loved the battle and loved the fight. I don't think, and uh, until you know, until then, and I was still obviously young, and. Uh, then I had designs on wanting to, to go to the Olympics and represent Australia. And, and how, how old are you? How old are you there? Mate, that was like by nine, I thought that would be a good thing. I didn't know whether I could do it. But then by the time I was 12, I was still leading the charge in my age group. You, each year you'd go up and you compete against your own age. And um, I was still coming out on top uh, in breaststroke. And um, I got invited into this squad on the North Shore. So this squad was a senior squad that had you know all different age groups. Um, 12 was young for that squad, but uh, I got invited into it. And by chance, the, the head coach was of the pool was the, the then the Olympic coach for the Australian what was team. His name? What's a guy called Terry Gathercole. Okay. Yep. So Terry Gathercole was a breaststroker in his younger days as well. Was ranked number one in the world for the same distance 200 breaststroke that I was uh, becoming better at. And, um, so I, I took to him like you, you wouldn't believe. So I was really just, it was like a father figure for me. And I got into that pool at age 12 and I worked out really quickly that it was a six lane pool and that if you could progress as the coach put you up the lanes, if you got to lane six, you represented Australia because anyone that was in lane six was on a plane overseas for some event. Wow. No one missed out. 
And it was one of those pools where everyone just got better if you stayed in there and the, the way you trained, how you went about it, the process. Is there any names that were in that pool that went on to sort of a bit of there, there were fame in, and Yeah, Olympics in the 80s, and... but not, there weren't like the Grand Hackett's and yep. the, the Ian Thoughts back then, but there were swimmers that all went to the Olympics and Commonwealth Games, none, none that I think anyone would know unless you're into swimming, but... Um, but it made it really easy for a 12, 13-year-old kid to go, what am I going to do? There's the finish line. It's lane six. Mm. Let's just get there as quick as we can. So I trained harder. We, you know, it was, it made, even back in the 70s and early 80s when I was in that pool, I reckon some of the coaching techniques and what he, he did would be used now today. Like we had log books. We had, we had to set goals. We got scored every week out of 10 for our effort levels. Um, the coach scored, you had to score yourself and you got scored back. There were things done then that 12 and 13 year olds don't do. And, um, it was like the platforms for me to be successful. I reckon like what I learned in those six years in that pool helped me when I did Ironman and helped me in business and just helped me in life in general. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so you, cool. so you're, you're a swimmer, you're 12, 13, you're a swimmer. Now, um, for those that don't know, um, former Australian Ironman Surf Life Saving Champion, seven times won the Uncle Toby's Super Series um, and twice won the Cool and Gatta Gold. Yes. Right? Um, so how's the progression from being swimming, being a breaststroker and, and obviously being yeah. a, a swimmer, when do you decide, when do you think yeah. about um, challenging yourself in the Ironman. In the Ironman. Arena. Well, it, yeah. look, it, it took a while. But what, what happened was I, I spent five years in that pool and at, for a year I was still in lane one. It was not <laughs> not a quick progression to get to lane six, let me tell you. You had to struggle. You had to bleed. Wow. You had to do your time. And um, you didn't go up until it was deserving. And when you went up, it was like a mini victory and you savoured it. And then you were just bashing it out in the next lane until a year later and you got tapped on the shoulder and you went up to the next lane. And people came and went and, yeah. um, you were just, yeah, if you're in for the fight and there you, you kept progressing. So I got to lane six when I was 17. So I did that stint. So you got to lane six. Got to lane six. Yeah. And Which? Got on a plane, re represented yep. Australia. Yep. Um, that year was, um, a non So at that stage, are you thinking like when, when, when are the Commonwealth Games and the Olympics? Are you, you yep. starting to think, okay, this is where I'm headed? Yep. Yep, I was on. I was on target. So I had uh, that year was the Oceania Games. Not it was a non-Olympic year. I missed by a year earlier. So I was sixteen the year before. Uh, I was in lane five and uh, competed in a few events at the Olympic Trials. Missed by um, a bit, and but then it was a year bigger, stronger, and with more work under me at seventeen. Made that team, and then the following year was the Commonwealth Games. Well, I came back from the Oceania Games. And I was having dinner at home and I saw a TV commercial that popped up and it was Kellogg's Nutrigrain, the cereal company, and it was Grant Kenny doing the ad, right? And I was like, first time I've ever seen anything like it. And he was bashing through the surf on the ski and body surfing down a big wave and running up the beach to the crowd and all the rest of it. And I just went, mate, that's me. I seriously just went, it was a, just a light bulb moment. And that was it. I turned my back on swimming as far as doing it full time and the only thing and joined the, the surf club at Manly like within a week. You're 16. 
I would have been, I was 17, nearly, nearly 18. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't far off then. I was sort of 17, 18 years of age and, uh, and I wanted to, to do what Grant Kenny did. And, uh, and I've told him that like years later, I told him that that was still at school. Yeah. You're still just finishing school, finishing school. Did you enjoy school? What, 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 what? I, I, school was like rest for me to keep training for swimming. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you don't have a break, you know, just kick back and relax and then get ready for the next training session. So I was a bit of a machine. Like yep. I was quite disciplined and, and the environment was everyone that was good at what we did had to be disciplined or you just didn't matter how much ability you had. Once you got to the, the pointy end of it, it just, that was just one part of it, you know, but, um, I saw that ad, joined the circuit club and like six months later, um, I was training away, training hard. And, uh, there was a poster pop up at the circuit club at Manly and it had this, uh, poster about this thing called the calling out a goal, which was a race. And the race was all because of a movie. So people listening that are over the age of 50, right, they probably have heard and seen the movie, the calling out a goal. Eh? And, um, it was fictional. But, um, but Grant Kenny played himself in the movie and it was all about these two Ironman brothers and a, and a, like a bossy father that favored the older son and they wanted to be Grant and they had to have this like ridiculously hard race at the end of the movie to showcase, to sort of finish the plot of, uh, the storyline. So, so anyway, the, the creators of the movie, they're, they're, they're Aussie guys. Yeah. Aussie yeah. guys. And the guy called, um, a guy called Michael Edgley was the promoter. So he was the guy that remember back in the eighties and nineties brought the circus to town. Yeah, It was him. So he was the circus guy and, uh, he was a promoter of the movie and, um, yeah, they had to have a real race and the race went from being like a 15 minute. So imagine doing a 15 minute run and that's what you do and you train for a 15 minute run. Well, this race was four and a half hours, you know, like you're talking that's, three that's... kilometers going up to 46 kilometers. So listeners have all been to the Gold Coast. You did, stand, you, did you think that was like, like that sounds far-fetched, right? That sounds far-fetched from what you were doing and yeah. what, what I guess Iron Man. Or, and, I, and I've joined the circuit club a year yeah, earlier. Yeah. And I've looked at Grant Kenny on television. Look, he looks like a Greek God. Yeah. Like this, like this, like chiseled bloke, you know, tanned and like just muscles rippling and, and there's me coming into it from a swimming background. Yeah. So they, I, they, they put up a big prize, right? Yeah. 20 K in yeah. gold in 84, um, with some prize money for second and third. But like you so say, it's interesting. So you're, you're the only one that's ever said to me, um, about this, when you heard about it, you think like, is that like ridiculous? And to be fair, thinking back now, I just thought, geez, it'd be good to finish that. <laughs> good to have a crack. <laughs> Not, not win it. It'd yeah. be good just to get across, get from the start to the finish in one piece. Well, I'm sure. not go to hospital. I'm, I'm sure because we're going to talk about it, right? How it changed your life, right? And uh, we had a breakfast at uh, the Good Bloke Society's uh, offices only a couple of weeks ago and our yeah. theme was, you know, sliding doors. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so you, you, you obviously think, oh, I'm going to have a crack at this. You, you're not realising what's about to happen. No. Right? You, no. You, you're not thinking of winning it and you're not thinking what happens afterwards, but yeah, let's, let's, so, let's go back to that yeah. point of deciding, okay, I'm going to tackle this. Yeah. So we I'm had 18, let's go. We, I can get it done. I reckon we had seven or eight months to the race and there were four, five guys counting me in the circuit club at Manly. They were up for the fight to have a crack at this race. So we started training together 
and doing our bits and pieces. And the only way I knew how to train for this was like I used to do in the swimming pool. So I'd construct training sessions similar to what you did in the pool on the ski or running or what have you. And um, it, it was a great unknown. So you start a business and you might have a mate that knows a bit about it. So you ask for advice. You might go and sign up for the, the fun run you haven't done before. You go and chat to someone or look, look up online on how to train for it. Mate, no one knew how to train for a 46-kilometer Ironman race that's never been done in the history of the world before. Mm. So everyone was in the blind, like trying to work out what to do. So when I turned up after eight months of training to the start line, mate, I had no clue how I was going to go. So people came from all over the world to do this. They promoted this in South Africa, New Zealand. Well, $20,000. $20, in gold, yep. No, 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 mid eighties. So what's what's that? That big two hundred grand now. Yeah, it'd be a quarter of a million dollars yeah. now. Yeah, for yeah. something that. Well, the gold is worth that now. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah so. in, in, a, in a sport that had no prize money attached to it, like no. had no, you didn't yeah. have any other choice. It wasn't a living. There was no. no. You weren't leaving school and saying I'm going to be an Iron Man like no. you are if you're in Melbourne. You're going to be an AFL player. Not at that um, point. Nah. So you just you didn't you're just doing it for the sake of doing it, and it's a one off, and you know. It's nearly like competing in Survivor, where you get a start up, and which I have done, and um, I talk about and you might and you might win that, and then that's like a bit of a bit of a bonus because you you ain't going to do it again every week, are you? No. So anyway, so the cooling out of gold was like that, and I rocked up, and right, they promoted the hell out of this thing, and there was, they reckon there was hundreds of thousands on the coastline watching it. Like to this day, I still get every couple of months someone saying when they meet me, I was on the beach that day, I saw you run past. I'm like, really? <laughs> anyway, and that's like we're talking. You know, like, you know, 40 years ago now. Yeah. It's a so joke. 46K. So, um, Service Paradise, I, I've I've done the Surface Paradise drive to uh, Coolangatta Airport, airport yep. a lot, you know, and, yeah. and it's a fair drive. It's, yeah. It's, so, um, so let me, let me put you into swimmers, into sluggos. <laughs> I'll be the sluggos and I will, um, turn the temperature up to about 38 degrees and, and make sure there's no, no clouds in the skies and the sun's. Beaming down on you, and I'll say, Shawnee, off you go, run and swim and paddle down that end, and then somehow get back and try to beat a few people doing it. That's what that, I have to do. They would have been smart, though. Would have oh. would have been at eight o'clock in the morning the race. Yeah, but the problem is, like, you st we started at seven. Oh, you started at seven a.m. But, but four hours later, it's nearly midday. <laughs> <laughs> so it's thirty-eight it's degrees. Peak. It's like, and so back in eighty-four, there was no Gatorade, there was no. no electrolytes in water. You just, and like, there was no such thing as understanding Fluids. like dehydration yeah. levels. And so you just, it was just all potluck. So I, I literally, the first leg was 11 kilometers of running along the beach. So you had to run down towards Coolangatta and then jump in and swim 5K. So after that first leg, where are you going? I was about 30th, 25th, 30th out of a hundred. There were people from everywhere around the world. I remember the briefing the day before the race. There was a hundred blokes. Did you have in to qualify. Room. So how do you get into that hundred? Yeah, you had you to go have and qualify? have a medical and make sure you were sweet. Um, and they took a field of a hundred, and literally not many missed out because I think most people are like, "I'm not doing that." Okay, that's a joke. <laughs> so you. Um, so anyway, so I remember looking around the room the day before the race and thinking, "Fuck, how fit does some of these blokes look? And muscular." And so well, they're look, a lot older too, right? Oh, so five, six years older, the big guys, mid twenties. There were like, you ever seen the cover of a men's health magazine? Yeah. I reckon there was thirty blokes that could have been on the cover <laughs> out of the hundred. I was like, "No, why? Look at the muscles in that." But they were useless. Yeah, too much muscle. Yeah. Right? 
But anyway, that was because of, you were just naive. But I, I finished that first run leg um, about 25th, 30th, which was planned to a degree. There was a guy in the race that was Olympic swimming level. And he was, uh, I knew him, I trained with him <clears throat> for Manly. And I knew he was going to come through in the swim. And I was one of the fastest, if not like top three fastest, four fastest in the field, as it turned out. He was the fastest. And I looked for him and he came through and I jumped on his feet. And I did the next five kilometers on his feet all the way up to first place. And there was a guy on my feet, a guy called Robert Chapman, who'd been an Australian Ironman champion. We got out of the water and there's moments in time in, right, in, in life that you do certain things that just like will help you or not help you. And I made a decision going into the next 5K run leg that basically broke that race open for me. And what that was, we ran the first run leg with running shoes on. It was low tide on that day. So it was like concrete. And the next run leg was 5K and there was running shoes. So there was 100 seats all lined up with numbers behind them with a bucket of water and your shoes. And you put your foot in the bucket of water, shoes on and off you went. I didn't go the running shoes and went. The other two guys went for the shoes. Was that a plan or? No, just spot. Just, yeah. just, just that was that moment that I just made a split the second decision. Like I'm gone, I'm going. And I went I'm and, and, and. Take I'm, an opportunity to create a bit of. I didn't even give a thought. I just no. went, I just went, I'm only running for, I'm not running again after this. Yeah. Who gives a I shit? Like, let's go. just hit the lead and we'll, and we'll, and I never thought that that'd be the last time I saw anyone. And that was it. You led from there. I never saw another athlete until I shook the hand of the bloke that comes second three hours later. Wow. And there was 200,000 people cheering you on every time you got back to the beach to whatever you did. It was just chockers. It was like, like I was saying before that, um, that before the race, as I was filming it for the movie, they were cutting bits of the, the real race into the pretend stuff they're doing with the actors. and so they got helicopters and, and things following 13, you around? 13, I counted in the air before the start of the race. It was like... It was like the MCG on steroids, you know, like, and so that was the biggest race in my sport ever to this day. But as you said, what happened after, well, what happened afterward was I won the race by a minute and a half. Um, I won the first ever professional Ironman race. Um, no one can ever take that away from me. But the thing was the race then created a sport within, within surf life surfing. So what happened was the next year, the cooling of the goal was took on again. Off. They took, they said again, and then Kellogg's Nutrigrain said, we love this thing. We'll come up with a series. So then we started racing around the country. And then Uncle Toby's came in and wanted to have a crack at Kellogg's. And then there was a rival series. And then it, it became a, a live television thing and a series. And all of a well, sudden. become a staple on Sundays. You know, it was like, like Sunday you just you'd sit down. Let's, let's, let's watch these superhuman athletes, mm. you know, swim, ski, paddle. Um, it was entertainment. Um, so it, did, it changed it when, your life, yeah. And it was when the surf was huge that you got the big audience. So yeah. the first ever race, the Uncle Toby's Ironman race in 80, 1989 that I won, um, was they had a million viewers on a Sunday afternoon. That's unheard of. Mm. Um, but then well, when that, the surf was bigger, considering ports, because we've just had the, the, the Matildas and the, mm. the soccer and the, that, those numbers, you know, there was numbers talked about that, you know, the Matildas took over the Kathy Freeman. Yeah, the you know? two thousand four hundred meter run. And yeah, the, and the torch. Yeah, lit the torch. Yeah, it was four million Sydney. viewers. So you had a, a million. That's and that's, and that's back in the like massive. late eighties, nineties when, you know, it was on a Sunday afternoon, not not prime time at eight o'clock at night. No, when you're at home, people were going home to watch it. Yeah, 
So yeah, so we had a we had a good run. Like I I was I, I'm in one of those enviable positions in in my life where I was there at the very start and I got out at the very peak. Mm. That's why I mentioned before about mm. sl sliding doors, right? Yeah. Because moment in time you were at the right place, right time. You made a decision to have a crack at something yeah. that attracted you by just watching Grant Kenny mm. run around on the Kellogg's box and the, yeah. and the TV and, and you're 18 years of age, you win that first call and get a gold and um, the world, your life, the your world, life changes. The world opened up. So yeah. I then went from going, do I go to uni? Do I get a job? What do I do? I don't know what I love, but I love this. And then sponsorship started. I had a manager and I got like a sponsorship for 10 grand here and five grand here and did my first ever talk in 1984 where I got flown to Hawaii and, and I've never spoken in front of people before at that age to, for BP. And I got paid $5,000 to get and flown to Hawaii for a week to get up and talk in front of 500 executives from BP. Wow. So just the, my, my life changed. I had to go and get over the fear of being up in front of people, um, which terrified me at the time because that's who I was. That's what I had to do. That was the, that was the calling card. Yeah. And, uh, and then work out how to stay on top because I'm assuming a bit of sink, or sw sink and swim too. You probably didn't go through training or did anything nothing. like that. The manager would have said you're going on the plane. Probably didn't even it, go with it. It, it was like, do, do you want to do it? And I'm thinking, I, I just won twenty grand and busted my ass for like all day. And you get you saying I just got to get up and talk for fifty minutes for a quarter of that. Yeah, I mean, bring it on. I mean, but I don't know how I'm going to do it, and I'm shit scared. <laughs> I'll wing it. I'm shit scared, and I think I don't think I'm going to be very good, but I'll do it because I want the money. But uh, yeah, it's just yeah, it's like you you just step forward and have a crack. I mean, the funny thing is, right, that the, the I think the the guts I had in the cooling out of goal when you talk about just not putting the shoes on and going, like in a race where you you're leading at the hour and a half mark of a four and a half hour race, and having that sort of um, guts to do that was all, all came back to that swimming pool and what I learned in the pool with just that effort levels and just having belief and going through those lanes and the systems that we went through in the pool. It's funny how you, you learn from previous experience because, you know, there's no way had I not gone through that, that, that part of my life that I would have won that race. I wasn't faster than anyone else in the field. I, to the point where I walked off the beach that day when I won <clears throat> going and it was dead flat, there was no surf. I hadn't built my skills up in the water yet because I'd only been in the surf world for a year. Um, I was a natural runner over distance, really good, and I could handle heat well. I learned that early on, but I, I, mate, I was nowhere near as good as some of those other guys on the ski and the board. And I just, I got through, but I walked off the beach that day going, um, if this thing's on again next year, unless you improve by 20%, you ain't going to win again. Yeah. But what happened the next year? I just trained hard during the winter and I literally just... Didn't have a job, just all I did was train three times a day, and and I had the advantage of having one, but knowing where my weaknesses were, so I just set a plan around making sure my weaknesses got better, and it protected my strengths, my swimming and my running, but I knew I was weak in surf skills, ski paddling and board paddling, and I just did extras on those things. I was training five hours a day every day. For a year because I did not want to go. So the the year after Grant Kenny played himself in the movie, the year after, so he couldn't do the race, the real race. The year after he was in the race, and um, 
and the media are saying, who's the best? Is it Guy Leach or is it Grant Kenny? Grant Kenny hasn't raced this thing before. You know, can Guy Leach handle it? And that was the first time I've ever felt real pressure where I was like, I don't like this feeling because I, I was just unnerved by the whole thing because I put him up on a pedestal. Because you had well. expectations. Yeah, because I wasn't expect I wasn't expected to win the first year, so no, that was fine. No. But then Fly the expectations. The radar and just get and out also, there and have some fun. And, and also, I, I looked at Grant Kenny as if he was eight foot tall and yeah. twice the size of me, but he wasn't. He was shorter than me and not and not as big in stature, really. But um, but in my eye, the way I saw him was different because he he was like an idol. So I had to break that down and pretty much destroy that in that race to um to to win. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And they, they only race, they only they couldn't get a goal. It was only only for the two years. No, it's back. It's been on. Um, they brought it so back. what what happened was yeah. a couple of guys only died the second year. Oh, from? Exhaustion. Wow. Heat exhaustion, being out in the water, nearly drowning. And and it became one of those ones where surf lifesaving are like, we're actually called surf lifesaving. And we're nearly killing Putting these. people at risk. Nearly killing these blokes in this race. So they sort of. They, they put it on hold, and it wasn't until 1989 when the Uncle Toby's Ironman series that breakaway and that first race that we brought back the cooling at a goal, and I won that as well. So, um, so just just on that because you, you're undefeated, you never lost a race that you were entered in no, that marathon. That's right, in the marathon. Yeah. yeah, I lost a few to Trevor Hendy. Yeah, shorter distances. Don't worry about that. Yeah, but yeah, the longer ones were. It was like it was like my. I felt like they were my baby. Um, and I felt like because it made me and made the sport at the start, there was a special spot for me, um, with that event. And I just felt like, yeah, I just had this thing where I didn't want to ruin my record. And so because of it, I just, yeah, I used to train. I don't, I never thought I was better than anyone else. I just always thought I was better prepared. And when I, when I got to the start line, I was just very comfortable in myself in that I'd done all the work. I understood how to set a program, how to execute it, and I was very honest in how I trained. I was always, always made training um, more of a battle and more of a war than the actual race. So the race, a lot of times for me, felt quite easy because what I'd done in training for six months leading into it was just disgusting. What what you put your body through at times, and uh, and a real battle, and uh, I was just good. It's amazing on... what the body can do and what a and cope with and yeah and, and, and uh, you know the funny thing is right from an athletic point of view um unless you find out where your limit is in training you don't know where it is in a race so i never i never broke down in a race ever but i broke down in training because I, I got to a point where i spun the wheels that hard that i'd, I'd redlined and gone too hard and i'm like oh, okay that's the that's yeah, that's, that's, that's the ceiling yeah that's where it is that's the feeling and in a race i knew that and I'd, if i was getting close to that i'd just hold it back so I could go over four or five hours and hold it back under the ceiling and get to yeah, the finish Knowing that you still had petrol left. Petrol left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's an art to it. Yeah. Good fun, isn't it? I love it. I, I get I get. I grew, up down, I, I grew up down the beach. Where I grew up down the Mornington Peninsula. Went down and had many um, vacations and spent a lot of time on McRae, Rosebud Foreshore. Oh, yeah. yeah, did a bit of swimming and paddling out um, when I was 17, 18, but it was more about looking at the, uh, the opposite sex really, yeah. uh, leachy and, 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 and try me best as a, as a young and up and coming, uh, male. 
But That's uh, right. and then getting down to the Portsea Hotel. Yeah, well, I do. Um, I do spending all the, a few after parties. I do all the training, so the opposite sex will be looking at me. <laughs> 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 then I go to the after party at the Portsea pub and wreak havoc. Yeah, so, yeah. I bet you did too. Yeah. We may we may get into a couple of those after yeah. party stories, <laughs> but uh, so um, you, you, how long? Ten, fifteen years. You're a, you're an Ironman. You you you're a full time athlete. I did twelve. I did twelve years. Um, I was always the last. The last couple. It's funny. It's funny how the media work, right? Because they, when I first started, it was um, uh, they used to call me like just um, you know, king guy and um, you know, the endurance animal. And then near the back end of my career, they started calling me Evergreen and you know, the the legend guy. It's as if like you yeah, mate, they're, they're sort of putting one foot over the line that it's time yeah, to get out or something. But I was still going good in races. I wasn't. But I was 34, you know, and I started when I was 18. And, um, you know, and I used to think, shit, you know, they've, 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 they're labeling me something else, but I'm still winning races here and there and, and all that so you're still as You're still enjoying it. You're still as competitive yeah, as, I was enjoying as, it. as ever. Yeah, I love winning. The, the, the thing that got me in the end was this. I finished the season in April. We'd finished sort of March, April, and I'd get like a couple of months off where you just wouldn't. You'd stay generally fit, but you wouldn't do Ironman training. And um, and you could have a break from it. And then I'd start June 1 again. And then the season would start like the end, like start of October. So I'd go to Noosa. We'd take a camp up to Noosa with people that wanted to train. And we'd train up there in the wintertime and, and be ready to go for um, an October start for the season. I remember finishing in 95, 96. And I had the break and I'm thinking – Okay, I'm going to get my head around doing 17 sessions a week for 20 weeks straight in training in wintertime. So that's three three a day, every day, Monday to Friday, two on Saturday and Sunday off. Repeat, 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 and bleed in every session. And I went, I don't think I can do it. I think I, I think 17 is too I can't, I can't mentally face it. And I and I knew, right, that – see, work workload in sport <clears> – <throat> Most athletes have to do at least enough, doesn't matter how good you are, to be at the top, right? And then when you're there, then there's the, the little things that you do, the 1%, like even less than 1% when you're talking at the world's best that you need to do to beat someone else, right? And the problem is if you're not willing to do those 17 sessions, which is like the, the guts of get, keeping you there at that peak, then you've got problems. And I knew that that was the end. Are you, yeah. At that point, are you already starting to think of post life as an athlete? Are you starting to set yourself up? Are you, you got any other interests, passions, you know, business? What, what, what? Yeah. So fitness was always, <clears throat> I, I, I hedged my bets back in the Ironman days. I, a mate of mine and I bought a surf shop on Manly Beach. That's where I sort of uh, met Lane Beachley, uh, the surfer. Um, and I bought that at the age of 19. So I won the cooling out of goal. The second one hadn't started. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I literally like, I don't know whether this thing's got legs to make me a living. Yeah. Um, I better have something up my sleeve, you know. And um, so we bought this surf shop on the beachfront, across the road from the beach at Manly. And um, and then the Ironman thing did pick up. And then we all had an opportunity to buy one um, set up in the Corso at Manly. You know, the, the, the blocked off area yep. there. Got one in there. And got another one down at the wharf, Manly Wharf. And then, and then I had the opportunity to set up a couple on the Gold Coast. 
So I did that whilst I was doing Ironman. So I had oh. a, but my mate was running them, right? So, but I still, I had my hand in it a bit. So I did like business and we ended up um, exiting out of that and Billabong bought them from us before the surf industry imploded with, um, you know, with them becoming not cool anymore and granddad's wanting to buy a Quicksilver and a Billabong shirt, not, you know, because the, the cool kids weren't wearing it anymore. So anyway, so we, we offloaded that, but, um, you know, I always had design. So I was lucky that I was one of those athletes that had an, had an inkling of what I wanted to do. I like making money. I like the idea of just, that was a competition a bit, you know, that yeah. could keep me that made, inspired. That was, yeah. Competitive. Yeah. Yeah. Nature, yeah. And, and yeah, it's yeah. black and white and yeah. you can win or lose, you know, if you set goals around it. Um, but I knew fitness was the thing I loved too. I, I did love the training. That was your hitting zone, yeah. Yeah, not seventeen sessions in in a week at the end, but you know, but um, but I still loved it, and so I wanted to. I I knew that when I got out that there was a window where I could still be the Ironman champion, where companies had paid me money to ind- to be endorse their product, but that that only lasts so long because the next star comes along in the next sport. The Olympics roll through, and there's some freak that wins five Olympic gold medals, and they're yeah. they're the flight, they're on the cereal box, aren't they? course. Not Guy Leach anymore or whatever it is. So I knew I had to do something different to that. So I sort of picked that I was going to be the face of fitness and be the fitness expert. So I set a whole business model up around that. And, um, so I started doing training groups out of Manly, started training celebrities for, for profile, you know, and for media, yep. did some media deals, wrote, write articles and new idea. What sort, and of, what sort of celebrities, any, any Big, big name celebrities. Just, just the household name, Shawnee. Just, just the just, household. Just the global ones like <laughs> George Clooney. Oh, these only. Yeah. yeah. Madonna. Madonna. Hugh Jackman. Kidman's. You know, just, just the ones that are global stars. <laughs> I did do, I did have some uh, some Aussies. Like I, I took weight off Jonathan Coleman, uh, Dicko. I was going to say any unfit uh, celebrities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first few were all, all, all pretty fit. They're, they're on good, all in good nick. Yeah. They were more for movies and yep. some promo stuff. But, um, yeah, John, lost 40 kilos over, over 18 months with me. Great. He kept it off until he died. Yeah. Uh, we lost John. Um, but Dick, I did until, um, Jenny Craig's Weight Watchers signed him up and he said, I, I got to put it back on. I got to go leechy. They've given me fucking 50 K. <laughs> <laughs> You're out the door, brother. I'm going to take the money. So he went with them and lost some weight and then put it back on. Uh, Casey Donovan, who won Australian yep. Idol. Remember her? Yep. Yeah, so sure did. Worked with her. So, yeah, so I did all that. So yep. I had all that yep. going. And But I was always really interested in, I thought, mate, like these other companies have, mate, they've put a lot of money into building my name in the market, right? People knew my name in the 80s and yeah. 90s. Everyone knew who I was. And I'm like, when I retire, I need to leverage that like it's, it's just wasted if you don't well, you, use something you, use it you, you had a national brand too yeah 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 and, and for a number of years there was this sweeney report that would come out and i'd always look at it and who's the most famous named athletes in the country and there were three or four years where i'd be in the top 10 i never was in, i was never in the top five but i was always in that six to ten mm. spot um so that, yeah up against alan borders and pat cash and Greg Norman and, you know, those sort of names, the yeah. big, big brands that were, were around at the time. And so, so I sort of had a, had a good name and I thought, well, I can use that with fitness and build a business. So where I made a lot of good decisions and, and made good money was licensing my name into um, places like Big W where they did yep. clothing, fitness clothing ranges with me 
uh, fitness equipment in there. I, I had in anaconda stores. I had a, a range of um, ocean craft, like watercraft, like stand-up paddle boards, kayaks, and all paddles and life jackets, all with my name, signature brand. But I take a clip through the cash register of all that stuff. Um, and to drive that, I used to do marketing initiatives like step Guinness Book of World Records doing group fitness classes. So I'd pick a, uh, an event, like something like a circuit class, and I'd wrangle a whole bunch of people there and get the media to turn up and put a PR agency on it, break the record and have the Guinness Book of Records give me the thing. And, uh, and I'd leverage that. That'd keep me going for another. Do you still hold any of those well, records? You know? Got them all, mate. Yeah, you still got them all. all. Still Guinness, world, Guinness Book of Records. Still a world champion. Yeah, mate, my best, great. My best one was... Um, maybe the Good Blokes Society. Maybe we could we design something, something of course. and put the Good Blokes Society in the Guinness uh, World, world uh, Records. Yeah, we could definitely do something. We'd do a Good Blokes Society sort of, um, you know, like category. Yeah. The um, how I, many? How many? How about this one? Uh, how many fireballs you can have at the bar at the same time? How many blokes? Uh, yeah, can same, drink a consecutively, consecutively <laughs> until someone dies. We love a fire. <laughs> the reason I said that is we love a fireball on a Friday. The the GVS we would be good for the uh, fireball brand. That's they're, for sure. They're good on the golf course those as well. Good <laughs> yeah. The um, but yeah, I did one. I did one down here in Melbourne, and uh, the uh, Arnold Classic was on. Arnie was in town first time, <clears throat> and um. I got him up on stage. I, I did one for like a stomach core fitness class that hadn't been done before. And I went to the Guinness Book of Records and said, mate, I want to do one with Arnold Schwarzenegger on stage. And I want a category that hasn't been done before. What can I do? And they said, if you get more than 250 starters, it'll be a legitimate record. So I did that one down here and Arnie handed over the uh, certificate. That went worldwide. Media. Wow. That one, that was a cracker. So Yeah. There's been some fun ones, but anyway. I had a good play. You got a good marketing mind. I, I just understood the value of um, other companies over 15, 12, 15 years of my sporting career um, using their money to make me more famous. Yeah. And it'd be like you have a, you have a, a brand, GBS, and someone else is out there promoting that for 15 years for you and it's, you're, it's not costing. In fact, they're actually giving you money and making you more famous. That's mm. what I had. I understood what I got when Uncle Toby's put me on television for cereal and car companies had me on television and health funds and all these different TV commercials I did nationally. They were paying me for the, for the opportunity to have me, but they were making me more famous. Yeah. And I'm like, why would you go and lose that when you got out of sport? So that, and I always loved fitness. So I tied it up with that. And I always had this, this liking to people like Walt Disney that had products like Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and they took those and then they licensed them on t-shirts and toys and, you know, and those sort of things. And I remember it always rang through when I, when Batman first came out and Jack Nicholson didn't take, could they couldn't pay him as big a fee for his role. And he took a clip of the merchandising. That was in Macca's worldwide. And so they had like Batman and all the characters on the cups and stuff in Macca's for a while. And he got a clip of that. He made $50 million on the merch. Massive. Yeah. And even more, it might've been 80 million. And that was the first I heard of um, actors taking a clip of the merchandise on those sort of, you know, those, those type of movies. And I thought, mate, I don't want to do that. You know? And that's what I did. But I did that until, until I lost Chucky. Chucky. So then I lost yeah. interest. I lost interest in... In making money well, for jam. And, and I uh, guess that brings yeah. back to the, the podcast being purpose-driven, right? Mm. The good blokes with a purpose. And let's talk about 
Chucky and let's talk about purpose and, and yeah. really this is why we've been connected and now we share the purpose of, uh, helping men, women, um, create awareness, uh, for, for men's health, mental health. Um, but your purpose and, and the one that we share now is, is with heart 180 and, and, um, RIP, God bless Chucky. Um, you, you, uh, obviously talk to us about the, the paddling class and talk us yeah. about Chucky. It was just, it was a, just a shit day, you know, mm. just a shit day. The, um, my, my paddling classes in the morning that I was doing was, was set up at the start 21 years ago because I, you know, I wanted a reason to get out of bed in the morning to go training so I wouldn't miss sessions. And I thought, well, if I set this training group up where people turn up to train with me and they pay 20 bucks cash to turn up and I take the session, but I do it with them, then I'll get out of bed because I have to. And that was the impetus at the start to do it. And so I thought, oh, it'll, it'll go all right, you know, so I threw it out to people and... Mate, before you knew it, there was 20, 30, 40 people turning up Monday to Friday every morning to come and train with me, you know? And I was getting fit and we'd have coffee after. It was like, and they were predominantly blokes. So it's like, so 20 years ago, I was doing an aquatic version yeah. of the Good Bloke Society. You were. By default, just you without were. even 100%. Getting so men together, have a chat. They were getting together, health. mate. They, they were going to each other's weddings. They were doing business together. Mate, they were going to each other's 30th, 40th, yeah. 50th, and half the group that was there at people's birthdays was from the paddling group, and they didn't know anyone yeah. prior to that. So community. it was a. So you created a nice little community of. It was unbelievable. And, and because of it, we're still friends today with these people, and some of my best friends. But Chucky was, was one of the guys I knew prior to doing that because he interviewed me on Wildwater Sports. He was the journal and the reporter when I went to triathlon for a year. So they did a massive story on me going from surf Ironman over to, to triathlon. And he was the reporter and became mates from there. That was 1996. And, um, and when I did my first session down at Manly, he came along and came paddling as one of five that turned up for the first session 21 years ago. And so anyway, so nearly eight years ago in a session, there was 25, 30 there that morning, all blokes. Um, Chucky, unfortunately, at the end of the session, his heart stopped. He had a heart incident and, um, and I, I naturally jumped in and started resuscitating him and it was like really heavy. Uh, it took about 12 minutes for the ambos to turn up. Um, and I hadn't got him back by the time the ambos turned up. Um, and, and like the short of it was he didn't make it, you know? And, um, and so it shockwaves went through me and everyone that was there on that day and all his friends and family was just. He was a fit, healthy guy, trained every How day. old was? 62, 62 but like a 42-year-old. Um, but hadn't got checked up in recent times at, the, at that stage. But lean, his day off on a Sunday was walking the golf course for 18 holes. Every other day he ran or paddled or went to the gym. So he was in real good nick. Um, and so like, I, like what came out of it, which was disturbing, was that had I had a deep fib close by, he was a 70% chance of coming, coming back. Um, but without it and me doing resus, which I knew how to do, he was less than 10. So I was like, like, these are numbers I never heard of before. Like I'd yeah. left the cert club 10 years earlier. <laughs> so there was no defibs around and I didn't know anything about it. And I started asking the boys, like, did you know, anyone know this? And like, no one's like, no. Nah. And my friends are like, like, you know, not, not half wits. 
they're all well-to-do guys that are educated and you know got common sense and no one knew and so when the cardiologist said oh yeah this is like what's happened to chucky is the biggest killer in the country gets a hundred people a day i'm like no no so i said the guy said no no cancer gets much more than that he said no do you have a look at look it up and i did heart health and so i was like i was shocked so anyway because chucky was in the media the media obviously jumped on this and I was resusking and it was like story of the, of the year type thing. And so I, I, I asked the family whether they're happy for me to talk about it. I said, you know, you're happy for me to mention about, you know, the defibs and they said, fine. I said, you know, like do your best. It'll help other people. And, and that, that started the, the awareness. Yeah. I just, you know what it is. It's like, I nearly thought like it's, it's probably going to help me to talk about it than just hide yeah. from it. Um, I'd never done research on someone I knew before. I'd done it a couple of times on people I didn't know down the beach, but I wasn't really the sole person that had to decide whether they're going to live or die. There was other people helping. Um, so like, I, I didn't know how I was going to come out of it. I didn't know whether it was going to do me in, whether I needed to seek help. Yeah. Um, but I think the purpose piece and that drive to want to make a difference and, and friggin' just, you know, put his, his, his name up in lights and do something around his, you know, his demise because he was a great man and make something of it was the thing that inspired me to, to kick on and probably not go through bad times with it because I felt like I was actually helping and doing something good and, and I lost interest in the other stuff. So it's just funny in life how when your purpose is so strong, um, when it, it, it fades everything out of the way, which you thought was your purpose before that, this trumped it yeah. by a long way because of an incident. Um, this thing will drive me to the day I die. Yeah. And, and you know, I've, I, winning Ironman races gave me the biggest buzz from a, a feeling point of view um, in my body, but there's nothing more satisfying than this. It's different, you know, because KPIs in a business um, run around different factors. And one is obviously income and profits, but in my line of work, it's life saved as well, Yeah, which is a KPI, which you don't get in, in most businesses, do you? No. no. And that's what I get. So we get, um, you know, we get nearly a life saved every two weeks. It's like probably every two and a half weeks. It averages out now. So it's over 20 a year. And so I find out because they need another battery after they use the bat, the, the, the defib on someone yeah. and it shocks, you know? So going back to Chucky, so that's about, uh, that's eight years ago. You're nearly eight years yeah. ago. Eight years this, this January. So from that point, you then oh, yeah. obviously take on this whole defib. I take it on part-time uh, Awareness at the and advocate and, and yeah. so part-time and it becomes yeah. now, now yeah. it's, it's your business I think it's part like of your a, life. I think it's like a journey that anyone has when they, they, they go into something they like and then they realize that it's more important than anything else. And it took time for me to go and weed the, the other stuff that I had responsibilities at and want to put more time into the, into the defibs. Um, and I felt like that education process was really important. But then I thought, well, if I'm doing that, I may as well make sure that people are getting the best defibs and getting training with it. Um, and that, that started the process off. And within two years, it became a full-time um, gig where I was like spending every day that I got out of bed doing anything to do with um, business was to do with the defibs. And at the start, I would go and <laughs> I'd be at home at my, my house at Curly down the beach and orders would come in and I'd literally 
get the DFIP sent to my house and I'd go and pack the car up and drive down to the local post office and people would be horrified as I'm coming out with boxes of DFIPs and lined up with 20 DFIPs lined up to go to the counter and spend half an hour there with people. So I'd always say, yeah, you go through, you go through. <laughs> so I, I had to pick post offices that were quieter and go pick there when it was... The right times. The right times. So that was the start of it. And I remember I sent one out after about six months to Mullum Mullum near Ringwood, isn't it? That you yeah, said? Yeah, 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 Ringwood yeah, in Victoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was to Park Run there because we got, I got Park, I taught Park Run into getting one and doing a a, um, a donation drive for their members to get them in every one of their venues, 200 around the country. And this 42-year-old guy, Brett Orford, was running with his eight-year-old kid at the local fun run there at Mullum Mullum. And he dropped dead next to his kid. His kid stood there and looked at the dad and they ran the DFib out and got him back on the second shock. So that was my first say. But I remember in texter writing Mullen Mullen, because I remember writing it going, nah, that can't. and I went to my phone to Google and went, that can't that's be a suburb. Place. No. That's bullshit. <laughs> that's not a subject. That's wrong. That's a suburb, I mean. And yeah, and, and I went, oh, it is actually a suburb. And I remembered it. And that was like, I just went, I'm going to do more of this. Wow. This is awesome. Like I actually had my hands on the defib that went out to that place that, and then I met the guy. I mm. came down to Melbourne and met him, and uh, and he started. He jumped in on the thing and wanted to help, and and he he got out of hospital with two stents put in, and he's run a marathon since, you know. And his kid's now, you know, like a teenager. So you just, it's it's a good gig, huh? Yeah. It's a good and like that, and it's that's... it's progressed now. We go to the point now that we're solving problems with we're building an app right now which locates DFibs near you. You can register your device. You can get training for free through the app online, through our education platform. You can register your DFib so that you know when the battery and pads are up for renewal. So we're, we're always trying to solve problems in this space so that we can save more lives. Yeah. That's good. That's great. And and um, for, for the members that, that may not realise and uh, for anyone listening – I'm very proud that, uh, you know, we've decided that the Good Bloke Society um, is now in partnership with you, Leachy, with Heart 180, and, and, and you're our official wellness partner. And um, the, the event that we did back in May in Melbourne was the first event that um, you come and spoke at and uh, spoke about your story and um, and then spoke about Heart 180. And I'm proud to say that from that first event, I think that we've had somewhere between 30 and, and 40 DFib sales. Probably, we've, we've, yeah. we've, we've had probably anywhere from six to 10 members that have gone and purchased one, yep. two, five. I think someone so purchased Joe, Joe, Joe Morello. Um, he got five for his family. Five the, for the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, and um, uh, the guy down here in Melbourne. Benny Haynes. Benny Haynes. Benny Haynes. He, he bought five or six five, yep, for, for all his for work yep. and, and, and for family. Yep. And then uh, Lukey from Mount Gambia bought a bought a couple. Yep. Um, and it goes so on. Yeah. I'm not not looking forward to that phone call, but in, in reference to, I, I know it will happen. We'll, we'll get a phone call, and it will be impactful that someone within the Good Bloke Society has bought a defib and has been used, and we, we've say we've saved a life. Yeah, it'll happen, and sure. it will happen. Yeah. Um, We've actually had two members or, or two people, one one member, Mikey Ryan, and another great friend of GBS, Mark Sutherland, just in um, recent six, eight weeks, both of them very similar, um, only a week apart, both had serious um, 
heart attacks and, yeah. and, and, and finished in hospital and they're, they're both with us now and, um, survived. But, uh, <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that I've become very passionate about and I'm looking forward to the relationship that we have, um, going forward. I look forward to all the other events that we've got coming up next week. We're in Brisbane. We've got a yeah. sports lunch. We've got yeah. Locker Roach, Jeff Fennick, yourself. So we're going to be talking more about your story. We'll be talking more about Heart 180. And then the week after, we've got a business and wellness lunch in Sydney. We've got yeah. a couple of your good friends. Tommy Cam Carroll. Yep. Tom Cameron, Carroll Cameron talking Dada. his story. And then yep. Cam's going to host. Cam was on the golf course with me yesterday. Yep. At, uh, down in Sydney. Yeah. Yep. Up in Sydney. Yeah. We're going to yeah, play yeah. plenty of golf together. Indeed. Indeed. It, no, it's a good gig, you know, like the, um, you know, the reference to what I started 20 years ago and that camaraderie between blokes that are like-minded and, and, um, feel like they've got a home and they can talk and meet other people is really important. And as you get older in life, you realize that that's, um, one of the mainstays to staying healthy mentally. Um, you know, and yeah, and your the group that you've got and what I've seen is very similar to what by chance we started 20 years ago. And I still work out with these guys in different groups now and hang out and play golf with these blokes that I met over the last two decades that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for, you know, just blokes getting together. So, yeah. uh, so good on you. I'm happy to be involved. Heart 180 is a, is, is a, is a great business to be able to go and keep people alive. And, um, and you know, the, the fact that you've got so many guys that are in the group that can help get the message out there and we can protect through, through just, you know, sending that message out to go and get your heart checked to, you know, to sort of to keep yourself in good nick and to get more DVs out there. It, it's a great way of, um, it's a great combination. For yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah, it is. And, uh, as I mentioned, happy to be here. Yeah, no, it's been great to have this chat and, um, I, I'm sure that there's plenty of listeners that, uh, and, and members of the GBS that, uh, are going to be enjoying, uh, this episode of this podcast. Um, Episode four of Good Blokes with a Purpose. Um, we, we've we've had a busy last couple of weeks since our last um, podcast. Now, Leachy, with our podcast, we actually give the listeners a little bit of a uh, opportunity to win a little prize. Last mm -hmm. week, the winner um, or last episode was Naz Grimaldi. Naz got the correct answer of forty three offices from O'Brien's real estate because we had Johnny Rombotis and Dazza and. Uh, Stavros um, from O'Brien's Real Estate. And just on that episode, we had a listener that uh, has got a, a land division in, in um, Wallert and he was listening to the podcast and because the O'Brien group have um, decided that they're going to give a, a, a rebate from their commissions on, on any sales that any GBS member from our community provides to O'Brien's if they list and, and, and sell a house. Uh, we've been able to create a relationship with this member who, who's got a, a, a land division that uh, he needs to get sold. Uh, he's got in touch with um, the team at O'Brien's. They're now doing business. Yeah. Um, they've got Simmons Homes involved. And we've got this wonderful, um, I, I guess, uh, relationship being built from our last podcast very so quickly, wow. which is which is credit to our members, which is credit to um, O'Brien's for putting up that um, – uh, incentive that, uh, some money's coming back to the Good Blokes Society and our members wellness fund. Mm -hmm. We might as well mention the walk, the Good Blokes Walk for yeah. Nine, which 
uh, is in Sydney on the 17th of November and the 24th. So you're going to be heavily involved in that. You're going to walk Apparently a few I hours am. in I, Melbourne I, I and did. Sydney. I have committed, haven't I? <laughs> you have committed, but we're going to promote Get the Art 180. On. And um, obviously, if anyone does have any uh, heart failures on the way around on those Jeez, nine hours, we've got a defib <laughs> close by uh, and we've got 70% chance because that, 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 those numbers are quite... Staggering. Staggering, aren't they? It's all about time, right? So your, your th- first 100, that's why Heart, Heart 180 is called 180, 180 seconds is your, your window of that's the window. perfect opportunity. And get, so get that, that defib that, on in 180 seconds within so, three minutes. Yeah. And then every minute after that, 10% less chance of that shock t- ticking over the, kicking over the heart. So when the ambos turn up at, as best as they can at the 12, 13, 14 minute mark, whatever it is. You do the maths on ten percent less chance after three minutes, and to, to kick the heart over like like an engine, it's a lot less likely. So times everything. So if you fall over and break your arm, it doesn't matter if the ambo turns up fifteen minutes late. You're just in a bit more pain. But unfortunately, when the heart stops, it just yeah, you need that window for that electricity to get in there and do its thing. Well, I wish uh, wish Shane Warne had one close by. You know, yeah. like um, he's, he's obviously the um, uh, I, I guess. One of the latest victims to, to heart failure. Well, Rod, Rod um, March was the, the hardest one for me because I was actually there at the airport um, in Cairns when uh, when we all got, I got off the plane with him and Alan Border and uh, Ian Healy, and he walked past me and he called over to Alan Border who I was standing next to, and said, "Ab, um, mate, I've got no golf clubs. I'll see you back at the hotel." And he said, no worries. And I waited with AB to get my golf clubs with Alan Borders, who was on the small plane in the undercarriage. Mate, Rod Marsh gets into a car with two other guys in a high car and drives off and has a heart attack two minutes up the road. And in my golf bag was a defib to give out to a cricket club. Wow. If he has the heart attack two minutes earlier yeah. in the airport, he's Mate, silly. the defib's there. I knew what I had to do. You know, and I could have given him like a real good chance of surviving. So that, those ones kill you. Yeah. They kill you. I so, think. I think mm. just on that, Leachy, that it's just so important. Any listeners um, are thinking about for at home in the in the workplace, um, sending one to the, to the parents, um, make a good Christmas present um, or a, a birthday present. Like you, <laughs> you think about going down the shop and getting a bottle of wine or yeah, um, totally. buying, buying a necklace. Well, I think uh, a defib would be a, a great a great gift or present or, and it's very important. So if anyone out there is listening, Heart 180 or um, Good Bloke Society, um, just, get um, in touch with s- us. Send you a message and we'll hook it up. We'll get them at the uh, a better price and we um, we give you the online training that you can use for your family, your staff, anything as part of the deal Yeah, as well. Yep. So I mentioned the quiz. So the quiz yep. this week, so you've got to send the answer of this question into Sean at goodblokesociety.com.au and the Quiz this week, Leach, is uh, how many Cool and Gatter golds did Guy Leach win? That's all you need to do. Send in the answer, sean at goodblokesociety.com.au. And uh, Leachy, we've got a lot coming up. We're actually, um, as I said, Brisbane, Sydney, uh, the Good Blokes Society, got Penfolds, Grangelands coming in September, spring starts. We've got our Dexian Grand Final lunch. Then we head in October. Then November, we've got the Good Blokes Walks. Uh, we're busy. Thanks mm. for being on episode on four. I really appreciate your time. You've done very well. You're, you're a good host, Shawnee. You're a good host. Thanks, mate. <laughs> I've had a lot of fun. Hopefully the listeners have enjoyed this podcast and uh, we're done.
Goodblokesociety.com.au. It's the good bloke.